Well, good morning. You want to feel old? That song that's going to be in your head when you wake up from your nap this afternoon, you know, the, the earworm, that song's 27 years old. Oh. Anyway, all right. Well, we're glad you're here with us. Um, have you ever been in a situation that just quickly spiraled out of control? One could say it escalated quickly. Okay. Um, when I was 11 years old, my family... Uh, I, was a, I was a big baseball fan. In fact, I, I grew up in the South. I was a big fan of the Atlanta Braves. There was a guy that I just, I mean, I idolized him without a doubt. Uh, his name was Dale Murphy. Um, he played uh, center field, right field for the Braves, and he was, he was my hero. Uh, probably every other uh, Halloween, I would dress up like Dale Murphy, and a lot of days in between just, you know, for the heck of it. Um, but I just, I just idolized Dale Murphy. And so, my, my family, um, we would take trips to Atlanta, uh, which was, um, which was where, where he played with the Braves, and, um, and we would camp a lot of times. We had a, we had a camper, and, and one year we camped at Stone Mountain, okay? If anybody's been to outside Atlanta, Stone Mountain, this huge rock, um, and, um, and while we were there, um, I, I, I was in that stage, I was 11 years old, I remember it vividly, I was 11 years old, and it, I was in that stage where, like, I was really into skateboarding, Okay? So I had my skateboard, and I'd kick around, I, I, I'd kick around Stone Mountain Park and the campground. And I, I remember um, at one point, uh, and I remember this is a big, huge rock sticking out of the ground, and it, it, the campground is kind of on the edge of it, and there's still elevation to go down. I remember riding my skateboard and getting to a point in the campground where I'm standing there, and, and our campsite is like down the hill a ways, okay? And I've got my skateboard, and I look, and I think, I can go down this hill, I can do this, right? And so I put my skateboard down, and I get one foot on it, and then I, I kick down, and as soon as my skateboard got any bit on that, on that uh, decline down the hill, I knew this was a huge mistake, okay? I mean, it was, fr from the get-go, it escalated quickly. Um, and so I'm, I'm on the skateboard, wobbling and shaking, okay? And uh, I'm sure that the screams had already started to come out of my mouth. And, and sure enough, I made it most of the way down, almost to the bottom of the hill. And, and I can't even begin to guess what, what, what act of, of nature got in my way. But something happened, and the skateboard stopped. Okay? But as anyone who's you know, even taken like basic physics will understand, like objects in motion tend to stay in motion, right? And so the skateboard stops, but I, in motion, did not. And I went flying, okay? Just flying and hit. It was, it was that weird, like, you know, if you've been around the campgrounds, like, it used to be asphalt at one point in time, but now it's just kind of, like, broken apart and gravelly. And I hit the ground, I don't know how many feet from where I stopped, and just flew, just destroyed my face, I've still got the scars, don't worry, I'm not going to point them out and show them to you, but I've got inside of my arms and hips, and I, I, had, I was wearing, this was, the, this was the real tragedy, I was wearing a brand new, like, Dale Murphy replica shirt that my dad had bought me for this trip. We were going to a game later that, that day, and it just, just shredded, like, it was, you know, just awful. And I, 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 I hit the ground, let out a scream, probably everyone in the campground thought someone had died, okay? Lady comes out of her camper, you know, she gets all motherly and puts her arm around me, are you okay? Oh, no, you know, picking gravel out of, my, out of my face, okay? 
And we find, we find like, I, obviously I survived, okay? But, but um, we find, a lot of times we find ourselves in situations that are so similar to standing at the top of that hill, right? Like we find ourselves in situations where we think, I can just, I can just kind of step into this, I can just sort of kick into this, and, and then it's going to end and it'll be over and I'll get the rush and everything's going to be fine. But how many times do we wind up in those situations and we get to the bottom of the hill and we're, we're bruised and bloody and skinned up and, and we find like, wait a minute, like I didn't, how did I go from, from here to there? Okay? And, and so we're going we're gonna to talk about how do things escalate so quickly for us? How do they get out of hand for us? Um, particularly when it comes to the use of power. Okay? Particularly when it comes to the use of power. And one of the things I want to say about this, one of the, one of the just, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but I want to say this pretty clearly now. We're in this series on temptation. We're talking about the ways that, that the world around us puts us into a, 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 a mold and tries to tell us this is what it looks like to be good and right, successful. And, and then our flesh engages in ways that like, we have desires that we want met, but we also, also the devil is at work in the world around us and in our lives and our souls and our, in our heads to try and move us towards, move us towards destruction, really is where he's pointed us, where he's got us aimed, and he's, he's nudging us, right? And in this, this issue of, of power and temptation, okay, when it comes to power and temptation, so often we're so enticed by it because the world around us tells us, no, 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 this is good. Having power is a good thing. If you have power, you're able to, to be more autonomous. You can be more free, that, that freedom is almost defined as being able to do what I want to do when I want to do it, okay? And, and so we, the world is kind of telling us that's what it means, and power, that's good. That's a, that's a goal to, to aspire towards. And my flesh definitely wants power, okay? I definitely want to be able to be in, in charge of my own life. I don't, want, I don't want anything coming across my path that I can't overpower in order to get towards my goals. Okay? Whether my goals are grandiose to be in charge of like some massive notable thing, or even if my goals are just as simple as to get through my day without, with the least amount of disturbance. I'm going I'm to try and angle power. I'm going to try and use power any, whatever, whatever's available to me to try, and get, to try and get those that are in my way to either get out of my way or to get them to, 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 to bend or move so that I can get to whatever it is that I'm after. And the devil would say this. He would love for you to believe that there's nothing wrong with those first two things. He'd love for you to think that it's perfectly normal. It's perfectly normal because you live in a dog-eat-dog world, right? Okay? You live, you live in, a, in, a, in a time and a place where if you don't have power, then you don't have significance. That, that somehow your worth is defined by how many people jump when you say so. And even if it's, even if it's, even if, again, you're not in a position where your power is widespread, he's, he's trying to, he prompts us, what happens when, what happens when it's the little thing? What happens when it's, when it's in the home? And a spouse doesn't do what you want, isn't, isn't, isn't giving you the thing that you want or need. Or when a child, boy, if you ever, wanna, if you ever want to, a reminder that you really, your power is limited, it's finite, right? 
How do we react and respond when, when, our, when something gets in the way of the goals? We're and, and all too often, we try to exert our power. And, and, and power is it's enticing. And, and it, so often, the use of it, it, it escalates quickly. And we get to a place where we're bruised and bloody, and those around us are as well. And we get there and we look back and we say, how did I wind up here? All I did was just kick in one step into this thing. And it got out of hand. And I think one of the things that you'll find, and it's something, it's, there's, there's an allurement even when it comes to the issue of temptation. I think one of the things that we find is this. When we talk about temptation, it's very tempting in and of itself to say, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not in this situation. I don't, I, this, is, this, is, this isn't my life that you're describing. And I want to just be straight with you here and say, that, that is the voice of temptation. It is very clearly the voice of temptation that tells you you're not tempted. No, 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 nothing to see here, move on. And so we kind of mindlessly go through these actions. Okay? We wind up continually, subtly, one degree at a time, powering up, using whatever influence we have, whatever tools that we may have at our disposal to try and get our way. And we want to look at a passage of Scripture where this happens. Let's go to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is a story, it's often called the story of David and Bathsheba. Um, and I want to make a case to you that, that really, um, this is really a, a contrast or a story about David and someone else. Um, that, that the story of Bathsheba, wrong as, as it may be, and what David did, we're going to read here, is wrong. Um, that the bulk of the chapter really deals with David in contrast to, to Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Okay? And, and so the situation, as you'll see, it escalates pretty quickly. Um, and and when, as it escalates, David's put in a, in a position where, where his authority or his power is, is questioned. And so let's take a look at this. When we get to, when we get to um, first Samuel, or 2 Samuel, sorry, chapter 11, we, uh, a little background with David. David, as, if you know his story, David had spent years and years and years from the time that he was told by a prophet of God that you're going to be king, and it's good to be king, right? Like Tom Petty told us that. So it's, it's good to be king, and he couldn't be wrong. It's good to be king, so let's get there, okay? Well, and then it took decades for David to get to the place where he was actually king. But when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, David's been made king, okay? He's king over Israel. He commands all the armies, the land, the people, okay? He is the king. He had taken, he had, he had been handed the throne through a conflict with Saul that David refused to engage with force. But now we get to, to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and he's sort of settled, okay? There's, there's peace amongst his people, and, um, and we find David um, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and I want to read it because it sets up what he's doing. Look at what it says, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It says that in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. 
but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Uh-oh. Right? Um, I don't want to stay here for a long time because, number one, I think the stuff that we want to get to is, is what happens next. But this is a great point to review, right? <laughs> David, all the things that we've been, we've been talking about for the last few weeks here at Life Community are present here. David is in, is, he's in vulnerable territory. He's in a place where he's idle. He's, he's, not, he's, not, he's not living purposefully. Okay? And in the midst of that, he's presented with something. A, a temptation is presented to him. And all, all Old Testament scholars will argue about whether or not Bathsheba should have been there. Did she know what she was doing when she was bathing there? And quite frankly, this morning, we're not going to get into those debates. We're simply going to say, David finds himself in a spot where he sees something, okay? And he's tempted by it. And he has a point to jump off, right? He could have, he could have jumped off the skateboard at that moment. But it says, and he sent for her, okay? He inquired. And so she comes to him, and now she's pregnant. What happens when we get that news, Right? Sort of like you're found out, okay? What, what do we do when, perhaps for you it's not, you know, she's pregnant, but perhaps for you it's the deal's gone bad. Perhaps for you it's the child is in trouble in a way that is embarrassing to you. That, perhaps for you it's that, that your finances at home have gotten to a place where they're just no longer manageable, and you have, you have your uh-oh moment. Because this is the point where I would say, this is the point where, where what we're going to do with the power that's available comes to us, okay? At this point, David had options, and one option would be this, I have sinned, and I've got to make this right, okay? But he takes a different path. Let's pick up again, verse 6, verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, remember in verse 1, he had sent Joab out to command the armies. He said, send me Uriah the Hittite, who we know as Bathsheba's husband. So Uriah's wife is pregnant. David is the father of the child. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked Joab, hey, how's it going? Right? How, uh, Joab, how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Small talk. Okay? Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. It's a great euphemism, right? Hey, I want you to go home and wash your feet. You'll also find your wife is there. Spend some alone time with her, okay? Still in verse 8, go wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. Verse 9, get this, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths or tents, 
And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. You see what's happened here? David's in the midst of trouble, right? Bathsheba is pregnant, and David is the father, and this thing could get explosive because dad's been gone, okay? Or the, father, the husband's been gone. Sorry, the husband's been gone. He's, he's out in the, in, the, in, the, in the fields. He's camped with the Israelite army. And so now that, that, that Bathsheba is pregnant, David goes into controlling mode, management mode, right? We, a better word for it would be manipulation mode. And so he brings Uriah in and tries to cover up his sin with a plausibly deniable scenario. Oh, no, 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 no. Even though there would be people around the palace who knew about David's encounter with Bathsheba, he says, he, he tries to create a scenario where, where Uriah comes home and there's a, there's a plausible explanation for the child. The timeline might be a little off, but it's believable. Okay? But here's the problem, right? David is going to use his power to do this. He has the power to bring Uriah in from the, from the battle. He has the power to send Uriah home. He has the power to do these things. But, but what happens? Uriah won't play the game, right? Uriah won't go home. He just won't do it. And so now David finds himself at another point in the fork in the road. What do we do? And, and, and for us to think about this question, what do we do when I'm using all of my best manipulation tactics, when I'm doing everything I can to cover up what I've done to make a mess of things, and nobody else will play along? Okay? And so David has a choice. Keep reading with me. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. This is the general, general Uriah's uh, commander. And he sent it by the hand of Uriah. That is cold-blooded. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there would be valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. You see what David does here within himself. He's, he doesn't have the power in that moment to get, to get Uriah to go home to cover up his sin. He actually begins to enlist other people to try and do it, right? He gets Joab in on this. Joab, here's what I want you to do. Now, Joab and all with all, all the information we have here, doesn't know why, okay? 
But there's a calculus that goes on with David. Well, I can't get Uriah to do the thing I want him to do, but I know someone that I can get to do something that I want them to do. Okay? So he hatches this elaborate scheme. And keep reading, verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had said to, to him, to, sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him, encourage Joab, he says to the messenger. Wow. Did you catch what's happened here? So David's made a mess of things. His desire has gone wrong, and now there's consequence. And instead of viewing the consequence of this as an opportunity for repentance, as an opportunity for redemption, David digs in, and he brings Uriah home. And when Uriah won't comply, he sends message through Uriah. He sends message to Joab to have Uriah killed. And when he finds out that it took place, do you hear the justification in what he has to say? Tell Joab this, it's not a big deal. People die all the time in battles, right? The sword devours one as well as another. If it wasn't Uriah, it would have been someone else. So don't be disturbed by this. And David justifies his choice. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah, this is Bathsheba, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. She mourned. And when this mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Now catch this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Of course it did, right? Of course it did. David, David had this, this moment, the, all these opportunities to get off the, the, the skateboard, to get off the, the, the roller coaster. He had all these times where he could have stepped away. And one after the next, he used the power that God had given him. He had been made king by God's anointing. It was God who had given David victory over his enemies. And now David uses that power that God had given him to manipulate a situation in such a way that, that it costs this man his life. And not only that, because Uriah the Hittite is an interesting, it's, it's very specific to name him. And he shows up somewhere else in the scriptures. In 1 Chronicles 11, there's a list. It's a list of men. They're called David's mighty men or David's men of valor. These were men that, remember the 20 years I mentioned from the time David was anointed to the time he was made king? In that period of time when David's running for his life, he's, he's, he's fleeing from, from a mad king Saul who wants to kill him. There were men who took up the cause of David, believing that David was, was God's anointed. And it goes through this list, and there's names. Joab is one of those men. And David rewards Joab when it's all said and done and makes him a general. And it goes down the list, and you know who you find? 
Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite wasn't some stranger to David. He was someone, by the way, Uriah the Hittite is a significant title. He wasn't even an Israelite. This is a guy who who had changed his allegiance from one foreign land to Israel to protect David. He had had renounced his identity as a Hittite to become an Israelite to protect David, to see that the will of God was carried out, that David was made king. And David used him as a pawn in a game to try and cover up his sin. You see, things escalate quickly, okay? Things escalate quickly. Now, I get it, right? Um, It's easy to think about this story as simply something a king did, right? Like, kings do bad stuff all the time. I've watched the shows. They tell me that kings do bad things. And I'm not a king, okay? But similar to everything, every other sort of sin... It's not the question so much of how much power you do have. It's a question of what you do with the power that's available to you. Okay? And I want to take a look at, at the situation David found himself in. You see, David was an icon. He was, he was iconic. He was, he was the king. He was the king. That's not ISIS. That's is. He is, in this story, Israel. Okay? He is. Like, he, if, if, if there's... If there's one person who embodies the children of God, it's David. Okay? When the story starts, but when the story starts, David is lounging. He's relaxing. He's feeding his desires with Bathsheba. He's manipulating the situations, what he does in the story. And then he justifies. Right? But Uriah, Uriah was kind of no one. He's just a guy who fought for David. I already mentioned he was a foreigner. He wasn't even an Israelite. He had exchanged his own land for that of Israel. And when the story begins, he's fighting. He's not lounging, he's fighting. And while David is feeding himself, feeding his desires, Uriah is denying himself. He's saying, how can I, how can I come home and do this when, when the army is out in tents? This is where I'm supposed to be. While David is manipulating, Uriah is trusting. He's trusting that the place God has put him is the right place. That he's not to be diverted from his mission. And while David is justifying his actions, Uriah is obeying. Uriah carried his his notice of death to the battlefield. The very order to have him killed, Uriah carries it to the battlefield. And you see, we're, there's this contrast that takes place, and it's very tempting for us to say, well, yeah, but I'm not a king. I can't kill people. Yeah, but neither was Uriah, right? And Uriah was faced with choices, He was given the freedom and the power to indulge in the same things that David was indulging in. And he made different choices. You see, the allurement of power, it doesn't care how many people are under your charge. 
The allurement of power is real for all of us. Will you use the power that God has given you to try and manipulate and justify? Or will we use the power that God has given us to trust that he's, he's given me something important to do? And it's, I'm obligated, I'm bound because he's my Lord to walk by faith and obey him in it. And so we ask this morning, like not do you have power, but where is your power? What is it that God's put in front of us? What, what options, what choices has he made available to you? And let's think about this through the, the stages of David's story. Because, you see, David wasn't where he belonged. He's, this, this power dynamic is set up because David wasn't where he belonged. And we, we wind up, how do things escalate? They wind up escalating when we get away from where we're supposed to be. Can I just speak directly and frankly with you? When we're not, when we're not in the battle, when we're, when we're moving away from it, when we're trying to get back and relax, we're start, starting to kind of kick into the spiral of things escalating out of control. We're no longer engaging the battle when we are lounging, when we're coasting. You see? So, so where is it? We could say, like, if, if, if it's springtime and David's supposed to be at war, okay? What time is it for you and I, and where are we supposed to be? Can you ask that question? Where are you supposed to be? I can tell you a few places. If, if you are a husband, you are supposed to be engaging your wife and vice versa, wives and husbands. If you are a parent, you are supposed to be engaging that battle with your children. Can I say this too? You're supposed to be on the here with people engaging your life with one another. You're supposed to be involved in community. That's where we belong. And when we get away from it, I, it's why we do what we do, right? When we get away from it, we wind up not only re like retreating from responsibility, but we back ourselves out of the avenues through which God's power flows to us so that things don't escalate to this point. When we're alone and separated is when these things get out of control. When we're together with the army, that's where the strength is found. And God's made it to be so. It's not good for you to be alone. So David wasn't where he belonged. He also wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. That's part of being where you're supposed to be, right? You see, God's made us for something. There's a lot of, a lot of great words we use for it, but I, I like the word vocation. God's made you for vocation. He's made you for, for a purpose. He's made you, he's, he's made you to be a, in a particular place doing something. And again, the temptation for us is to say, well, that doesn't really apply to me because I'm not a king. No, but, but he's, he has put you in a place for a purpose. Why does bigger have to be better? Why do these things only need to apply when it's on a grand scale? You and I find ourselves in the midst of power dynamics all day, every day. And when we find ourselves there, 
We're, we're in the place where, where God's places because those power dynamics are always taking place with other people. And if we boil the mission of God down to its simplest terms, it's to love him and love my neighbor. And so when I'm in the midst of those things, I'm, on the, I'm, on the, I'm at the front line of the battle. But when I'm not there and I'm not engaging, I've put myself into a place, into a situation where the third thing that we find out is true about David is really tempting to me, is that he was using people that he was really called to serve. And you see, this is what the world and my flesh and the devil are really, this is the stream that we're in that we have to, we have to fight against. It's this orientation in life that whatever God has given me, it's for my own gain. It's for my benefit. That God's blessings are really all about making my life more comfortable. They're about, they're about making things easier for me. If, it, if I'm comfortable and life is easy, and quite frankly, I feel secure, we, we call that God's blessing. But the reality is this. The reality is that that God has put other people in our lives. He's given us the power so that we can serve them. And that's not convenient, and it's not comfortable. You see, my flesh just wants to retreat and get away. Because quite frankly, going through like all the difficulty and the trial and the, and the struggle is hard. That's working against my aims. But God's purposes are different. He's put you where you are. He's given you something to do, and that something to do is for the benefit of my neighbor. If I objectify them the way David objectified Uriah, I'm just like David. Whether I have the power to take their life or not, I'm doing the same thing. And so how do I treat the people that I engage with on a daily basis who in some way, shape, or form are there to serve me? Who, who are there to, this happens in the marketplace, right? How do I treat the person that I come across who's meant, I'm, I'm, their, I'm their customer. They're supposed to make me happy. Do I devalue them? Do I power up on them when I don't get my way? How do I teach her? How do I treat the student who's causing me difficulty? Student, how do I treat the teacher who's causing me Difficulty. Husband, wife, father, mother. How, how do we react? How do we respond? What is our approach towards these situations where I can't get the people I'm supposed to serve, I can't get them to serve me? What am I supposed to do with this? And see... This didn't happen to David overnight, right? This is a, this is a it escalates quickly, but, but there was a point in time where David was, David refused to lift the sword against Saul who was trying to kill him. And now we find David in a situation where he can't get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife, so he takes Uriah's life. In James it says this, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire, my flesh, 
And this desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Quite literally, right? What happened to Uriah? What about the consequences of David's action? If you read the rest of the story, please do that. The next chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 12, there's consequences for David's decision. And here's the thing, the greatest of those consequences, the, the one that stings the most is that, that this child that was conceived in David's sin, that child died. See, our sin births death. That's what it does. Right? These things that we do, this thing that David did, these things that we do, they displease the Lord. And, and our sin, it gives birth to death. And unfortunately, it so often influences, inordinately, it influences people who are innocent. What has the, when, 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 you're, when you're in the marketplace, when you're, when you're on the phone with customer service and that person isn't giving you what you want, do you think it's really their fault? Do you think they're in charge of corporation XYZ? But no, but they're going to catch your wrath, right? Because you can't get them to give you what you want. Sorry, maybe I'm only talking about myself here. When that person in my job, who I just can't get them to do the thing I need them to do. Do I power up on them in ways that dehumanize them, humiliate them? Do I, how do I talk about them when they're not present? Do I try and create an atmosphere where that person might as well be dead in the system, dead in the place of work? You see, we're tempted with these things all the time. Where do we have power? I'd encourage you, please, this week, take that question seriously. Take it to cell group and discuss it. God has given you power. Where is it? What are you doing with it right now? And I, I would say this as we I'm going to wrap up with this. Be where you belong, right? Be where you belong. Doing what God has given you to do. Serving the people that God's placed in your life. See, this is what, this is what, what happens when things escalate. We wind up in the wrong place doing the wrong thing and harming the people that God intends for us to serve.